1: Thank you for joining us for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, By the way, before we get to our conversation for today, uh, many of you have noticed we've got some new music uh, that we're playing underneath the show. And uh, our engineer, Jesse Neiswanger, is not only a terrific engineer, but he's a composer. And uh, he's composed some of the music that you're going to start hearing during uh, portions of the show and going into breaks at the end of the show, whatever. So we're really uh, proud that Jesse has created some music for us. A couple other quick notes. Um, one of them is that I continue to really want to hear from you about how you all are doing out there during uh, this uh, difficult, difficult time we're living in. I've gotten a lot of emails from listeners, and I've tried now. I hope by the last couple days, I've managed to respond to virtually all of you who have written to me. But please continue. I I want to know how you're doing. I want to hear how you're... Um, finding little joys in difficult circumstances. I want to know what it's like to work out of your home these days, or if you're unemployed, how you're struggling to deal with what that means to you. So you can uh, write me at uh, bnigut, B-N-I-G-U-T, at gpb.org. I also like to hear the critics. I, there are times when people send me emails saying that they think we got something wrong, we haven't explored a topic in enough depth, and I'm very open to that and look forward to anything you might have to say on that, in that world uh, as well. So again, bniget at gpb.org. Um, we've got a very sobering topic to discuss today. And uh, not that everything about the coronavirus isn't uh, somber in many ways, but the impact that the virus has had on the African-American community continues to come to light. And although the data is not complete, although we still don't know a lot, what we do know is that there really has been a um, disproportionate impact to African American communities across the country and in Georgia as well. Um, so let me give you some figures, and then I'll introduce. <clears throat> excuse me, and then I'll introduce our uh, panel. There, there have been some differing figures about Georgia for whatever reason, but um, w- in one um, report coming out of the Department of Public Health says that of the uh, of the cases of Coronavirus in Georgia, 57 percent are uh, African American, and that 56 percent of the deaths in Georgia are African American as well. Despite the fact that, of course, the total population of African Americans in Georgia is far lower than that—some 30 percent or less even. Um, But but this is a problem around the country. So, for instance, in Illinois. 43% 43% of the people who have died from COVID-19 and 28% of those who have tested positive are African-Americans. And, that's, and African-Americans there make up just 51% of the population. In Chicago, uh, something like 72% of the virus-related fatalities are among African-Americans. In, in Michigan... Uh, Blacks make up 15% of the state population, but represent 35% of the people diagnosed with COVID-19. And that basically translates to mean that blacks in Michigan are 133% more likely to contract the virus relative to their percentage in the state. Blacks are overrepresented for deaths, accounting for 40% of the deaths in Michigan. In North Carolina, South Carolina, New York, the same pattern exists. Among those four states, blacks are 74% more likely to contract the virus uh, than their percentage in the state. And it goes on. In Louisiana, blacks represent one-third of the state population, but 70% of COVID-19 deaths, many of which are centered in uh, New Orleans. And in Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, 45% of the diagnoses and over 70% of the deaths are related to COVID-19. We know that black men are getting the disease uh, more frequently than black women. Uh, And so those are just some of the very sobering facts that we look at as we begin our conversation today on why this is happening and how it can be prevented in the future. Joining us for the conversation, Michael Thurman, who is the CEO, of course, of DeKalb County and a frequent panelist on Political Rewind. Michael, you've been sounding the alarm in DeKalb County about the virus in general and its impact on your community, where I think you have the third largest uh, outbreak in the state. Um, And and you are too terribly concerned about the impact on African-Americans. Thanks for joining us, Mike.
2: Well, thank you so much, Bill, and always uh, delighted to be with you. But first, let me just thank you, Uh, for having the uh, vision and, quite frankly, the empathy and concern to assemble this uh, panel that you have of distinguished doctors and and scientists and others who will help us better understand the challenge and hopefully present some alternatives as to how to mitigate this this crisis in America. But thank you uh, for assembling and bringing us here today.
1: Well, we're, we're very glad to be doing the show. Dr. Sandra Ford is also with us. She is the Director of Public Health for you out there in DeKalb County, uh, Mr. Thurman, but she's also the Interim Director of Public Health for Fulton County. Uh, Sandra Ford, that means you've gotten a really a closer look at this problem than many of the rest of us. How are you doing today?
3: I'm great. Thank you so much, and I agree with uh, CEO Thurman. Thank you for highlighting this issue. It's critical.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're joined by uh, Dr. Anastasia Brown Alvarado, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And um, we're especially interested today, although certainly we want to hear your thoughts on everything we talk about today, Dr. Alvarado, Um, your thoughts on mental health in the African-American community and disparities in in treatment and how that may have an impact on how African-Americans are dealing in this very difficult time. But thank you for being with us, Dr. Alvarado. (laughs) Uh,
4: good morning, and thank you for your invitation. Um, I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion on this topic about how it affects both physical and mental health as far as disparities across our country.
1: And we're really glad to uh, have our good, good Political Rewind friend, Dr. Andre Gillespie, political science professor at Emory University, on the show today. Andre, your most recent book, Race in the Obama Administration, does devote vote at least a little time. I noticed, I went back to look at it last night preparing for this. It does, to some extent, talk a little bit about Obama and African-American health care, the impact he may or may not have had. Um, and one of the things you point out is that while there were fewer African-Americans and Hispanics who were uninsured during the Obama administration, the fact of the matter was it still was a problem that there were large gaps between whites and blacks, even during the Obama years, uh, in who was insured and who wasn't. So thanks for being with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: All right, let's get started. Um, first of all, um, I, and I'll start with you, uh, Mike Thurman, and you, Dr. Ford, since you're both working uh, closely in CAB. Uh, and, Michael, let me give you the first shot at this first. Give us a sense of what you're seeing in terms of disparities in uh, numbers of cases in DeKalb County between blacks and whites, between both those who have the virus and uh, deaths.
2: Well, I will defer and allow Dr. Ford to deal more deeply with that. But just from a macro uh, view, uh, clearly, uh, it's socioeconomic, overlaid on race. And what you find is that individuals who do not have access to health care, who may be living in uh, uh, socioeconomically challenged conditions, have found themselves more likely to be uh, infected by the disease and consequently to succumb uh, to the illness as well. Another critical impact, uh, uh, at least narrative that we should examine is that oftentimes African Americans and people who uh, earn uh, at the bottom end of the uh, 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 salary scale uh, placed in environments that create risk of infection. They are, we talk about frontline workers, and we have many brave men and women who are doctors and nurses and those individuals who are doing a phenomenal job responding to this pandemic, but we often overlook that there are also frontline workers who drive motor buses. Uh, who pick up sanitation, who pick up the garbage. And more often than not, these individuals are people of color or people who earn towards the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, i.e., the higher uh, exposure you have, the greater risk you have of uh, contracting the, the disease.
1: Dr. Ford, uh, tell us a little bit about the infections in DeKalb County and how the, what kind of gap there is between white and black rates.
3: So right now, um, DeKalb County is number four in the state, uh, three-slash-four in the state for prevalence of uh, COVID-19 in general. We have, um, as of this morning, 1,173 cases. Um, Of those cases, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the data that we have um, is not identifying ethnicity or race specifically specifically. But what we are seeing is that um, there's a significant overabundance of African-Americans in the little bit of data that we do have. Um, we have um, in Decab, among the data that we do have, it's 23 percent – I'm sorry, 20 percent in DeKalb is are black and 6 percent are white of total cases. So that's a pretty dramatic variation for even even with the small numbers we have.
1: So let me ask this um, as a kind of a baseline for our conversation, Dr. Alvarado. Why is it important for us to know uh, the percentages of uh, African-Americans, in this case, who have the virus and where they are? Why does that make a difference?
3: Is that for Alvarado or for Ford?
1: Yeah, for Dr. Alvarado.
3: Okay.
4: (laughs) So... um, as uh, Mr. Thurman already mentioned, um, we're talking about, as far as exposure is concerned, um, looking at those who are frontline workers. And frontline workers, you know, are not just those who are employed in the healthcare system, um, but those who are helping um, keep our infrastructure going. Um, those in the grocery stores, uh, those who are, um, you know, maybe working in public transportation and the like. And so it it opens up the discussion for um, access to health care, whether we're talking about medical care, whether we're talking about mental health care. It's been an ongoing conversation um, in the African-American community, so there's been disparities um, that have been present. I believe that this pandemic, though, seems to magnify the disparities that have already been present. And now there are those who are in public health who are um, investigating this and looking at this, and this is more of a, a news topic that is is getting widespread attention, um, as it should, um, so that we all understand that people of color are have unequal access to health care and what is it that our country can do to be able to combat those disparities.
1: Rashawn Ray, who is a Brookings fellow, wrote a report about COVID-19 and the disparities uh, in, in the black community. And here's, a, here's um, one paragraph from what he said. Now, we have to ask how this happens in the wealthiest nation on earth. How can this inequality have such wide-reaching implications? Well, racial inequality was baked into the recipe of the creation of the United States of America. Inequities in neighborhood resources and the healthcare system are manifestations of this recipe. And when crises like the COVID-19 pandemic occur, inequalities are exacerbated rather than diminished. And what he's saying, in effect, Andre, is something that— I've suggested on the show for the last week, and that is that COVID-19 is exposing the already entrenched uh, fault lines that uh, keep us uh, in separate categories in this country, that keep us uh, from being treated, uh, all of us, equally. We like to say, Andra, we're all in this together. And, of course, we are in the sense that sheltering in place, following guidelines, like that are going to prevent the spread, but when it comes to looking at various communities, I'm not sure we are all in this together.
0: Um, I, I mean, I totally agree. Rashawn is a is a dear colleague of ours, and he was circulating this piece amongst our fellowship community this week. Um, you know, for a social scientists like us who study race and difference, we are interested in questions of inequality and how they manifest in every aspect of American life. And I think sometimes we are lulled into thinking that if, you know, we could pass the Civil Rights Act, if we could pass the Fair Housing Act, if we could pass the Voting Rights Act, if we can elect Barack Obama president of the United States, that somehow that erases 400 years of inequality, 400 years of discrimination, 400 years of slavery and, um, and depression sort of cumulatively. We know they didn't all happen at the same time. Um, for people who study American political development, one of the things that I always kind of point back to is work from one of my old professors, Steven Schronach and Karen Oren, says that even when you change a policy course, the vestiges and the residual effects of the original policies can still last years and years into the future. So, for instance, you know, it's been illegal to redline in the United States for a couple of generations at this point. We have a Fair Housing Act that is supposed to ensure equal access to housing, but decisions that were made in the 1940s about which neighborhoods were desirable and which neighborhoods weren't desirable, which were based largely on race, have impacts today in terms of housing values, right? That has implications for property taxes, for the quality of schools. Uh, People are making market decisions about whether or not to put grocery stores in those communities to give people access to fresh food. That's going to have an impact On whether or not people can be healthy and then we're not even talking about the personal sort of interactions with people that people have been informed by hundreds of years of stereotypes about different groups and fears of the other in the United States they may not even realize that they are unconsciously treating people differently on account of race even when we control for class which in a medical context could have implications for whether or not you actually are aggressive in care whether or not you're actually listening to patients when they're telling you their symptoms and taking them seriously uh, relative to other people. And that could have impacts that will affect people's lives and deaths. Uh, and their access to jobs, which then puts them in more vulnerable places. So this is the stuff that people are talking about when they talk about sort of systemic racism. Um, I hope that we're learning the lesson. I'm sad that it had to happen this way, but I'm also waiting with bated breath to see whether or not we actually get the idea that racism is not just whether or not you say the N-word, but that there are actually structural systems that we may not have created that may have effects, and we need to acknowledge them even if we didn't, in fact, create them or intend for them to be harmful to people.
1: You know, Michael, uh, it's interesting to hear uh, the way Andra talked about that, because what it suggests to me is that we have two different kinds of institutional discrimination to discuss here. One is the result of decades, hundreds of years, Of institutional racism that we'll talk about on one hand, and the other is sort of this um, maybe unrealized racism. So one example of that, Michael, is that um, I'm reading reports that when African Americans go to the doctor, uh, white doctors tend to talk to them more and listen to them less in general, no matter what the health situation is. But we're also hearing right now that it appears that African Americans are being tested far less than whites for COVID-19, Michael. That's maybe not blatant discrimination. It's just our failure to see each other as real people. Does that make sense?
2: Uh, absolutely. And the uh, professor is always right on point with her analysis. And, be to, to the point, this exposes why, and I think it was a French philosopher, Tocqueville, enlightened self-interest, now we're beginning to understand, hopefully as a state and a nation, why it's important for all of our citizens to have access to quality, affordable health care, because this disease is no respecter of person. So even though blacks may be disproportionately impacted, the disease can and does spread throughout a community, and we all become impacted. It's what, we, what I refer to as enlightened self-interest. You know, I have health insurance. My family does, thank God. But it is in my best interest for the family on the other side of town to also have access to affordable housing and health care. Because if they are healthy, then consequently, I'm healthier because they have access to doctors. And so it's very important if there's one lesson that we can learn from this crisis, from this deadly plague that's, that's bedeviling really the entire planet is that extreme nationalism and all racism, or xenophobia, will not work. You can build a wall a hundred feet high. This virus has the ability to transcend that wall. So we have to begin to think about how do the way I'm. I think Dr. King and I'm paraphrasing him. He said none of us can truly be uh, fed if any of us are hungry. None of us can truly claim to have quality health care if we know that they are communities that are vulnerable. And, by the way, this is not the last time we will face a crisis such as this. The question is, what can we learn from it and based on what can we learn and what will we do about it? The fact that we are not uh, uh, collecting the data necessary to help our scientists and doctors better pinpoint our responses is it's, it's just stunning in the realization that we don't know how badly, not just African Americans, but quite frankly, the state of Georgia is being impacted. We need to recalibrate and move quickly because now we can be more focused in our responses. But see, racism, and Dr. King said it, you know, you, it, obviously it hurts people of race, people of color, but it's also damaging to those who exhibit it and practice it as well. And this uh, disease is a perfect example of
1: that. You know, Dr. Ford, I want to pick up on what uh, Michael Thurman just said. Uh, you know, I understand that this virus <clears throat> hit the country, hit the state of Georgia with a speed that forced public health officials and, uh, and and the medical community to act very quickly. <clears throat> Excuse me. There wasn't a lot of forethought as people began uh, coming in with symptoms, that sort of thing. But Dr. Ford, the fact that we are not collecting data on some in, in, in counties around the state, what are the ages of people who are getting this disease? The race, obviously, uh, is significant. What's the survival uh, uh, percentage and, and what communities are surviving more than others? Isn't this the I, I get that we have 159 public health. Uh, 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 communities around the state, that there's not one centralized place where all this can be uh, uh, taken care of. But, But don't we, from this point on, need to make sure that when we have this sort of situation, all the data is being collected so we know how to act? Absolutely,
3: absolutely, um, because we do need to understand disease patterns and, and who, who's more, most at risk, who's, who's recovering, who's had underlying symptoms. And I will say that um, Georgia Department of Public Health, since last week, has been collecting that data, which is very helpful to us to understand distribution of, of um, these disease patterns. But yes, it was it was a gap to not have it. The issue was that the form uh, is filled out by providers who refer, and so if the provider didn't ask for the data when they referred the individual for testing, then we just didn't have it available. And so now there's been a more aggressive effort to collect this data.
1: Yeah, that was my point. Thank you for that because I, what I I guess I meant to say was you can't expect the state to be the uh, out there gathering the data from individual patients, but they right. can mandate that that data be collected at the source where the patient comes in, right?
3: Correct. I think that, um, okay. like you, as you said, when, when this first came out, it was such a panic, and I think the primary focus of all of us was just to get folks tested. And so, you know, if they referred, we tested. Um, whether the form was complete or not, you know, it was more important for folks just to get the test itself. And so now we're being more mindful about actually collecting data so we can study and learn.
1: So... Um, I want to pick up on something. Dr. Alvarado and then Andra, I want both of you to weigh in on this if you uh, would. At the very beginning of the show, um, Mike Thurman talked about uh, the fact that African-Americans are disproportionately, um, or certainly lower-income Georgians, are disproportionately forced to be out uh, working uh, through the virus uh, because of the jobs that they have. Um, So as we begin to talk about some of the factors that that give African-Americans more likelihood sociologically to be victims of this disease. Let's start with that one. Um, having to go to work as a bus driver, as a health care worker, um, whatever the job may be. Dr. Alvarado, the New York Times this morning had a story with chilling video. It was the Detroit bus that runs through 8 Mile one of the most disadvantaged communities in the United States. It was made famous in Eminem's movie, Eight Mile, one of the most segregated parts of Detroit, an area of poverty. And the reason the video was so chilling was that it showed workers, mostly African Americans, getting on the bus, sitting shoulder to shoulder in a packed Mm -hmm. bus, with no ability for social distancing, no ability to protect themselves against what the neighbor who's sitting next to them may be dealing with, and that is one of the big problems here. The number of African Americans who still have to go out to work and can't uh, socially distance and take care of themselves, right? Correct. Dr. Alvarado?
4: Yes, correct. I mean, you're looking at the fact that physical distancing, this social distancing is really a privilege. Um, Because if you have to go to work in order to be able to bring in an income, to be able to help um, your household, then you can't do the physical distancing as you have been asked to do, at least not in the way that we have uh, been tasked um, by those on our frontline workers and our public health and governmental officials. Um, And so then you have people who are, you know, going off to work. Um, having to encounter frequently throughout the day those who possibly could be um, positive for COVID-19, whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic. And then, of course, this same group of individuals, um, they have the economic barriers of either a lack of insurance, um, as Mr. Thurman said, or maybe just... Underinsured. So, they do have insurance, but then they have a hard time finding someone who accepts their insurance. Um, you know, so across the state of Georgia, it's not uncommon for me. I work in Gwinnett County at our community mental health center, but it's not uncommon for me to get patients from Fulton, from DeKalb, um, as far south as um, South Fulton and Fayetteville, as far north as Brazelton, as far west as Villa Rica patients who are coming across the state to see me because they cannot find a child psychiatrist who accepts their child's insurance. Um, And so it, it shows the disadvantages that we put those in this population at. I think it's important.
1: Under one of the reasons that's... Go ahead.
3: Oh, no, please go ahead.
1: I just wanted to throw it to you by saying one of the reasons I think I found that New York Times story so heartbreaking is I realize that the same thing is happening here in Georgia. And the people who are crowding onto buses are going out to do jobs that in many cases are being of great help to those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to work out of our homes, to shelter in place. And the fact that these are folks who are taking the risk of being exposed to a potentially deadly virus uh, because they have no choice and yet are acting for us uh, is, is heartbreaking to me.
0: Yeah, I think we should be grateful, but I think we should also remember the cultural context in which this operates. Um, so I think we need to be very clear. Um, as far as we know, there's no no body has a genetic predisposition um, to uh, COVID-19. It's a respiratory illness that anybody can take. You know, you know, our genome says that we're all like 99.9 whatever percent the same. So it's not that uh, blacks, but because of their blackness, uh, which is a cultural, a social kind of construct are more susceptible to COVID-19, they're more susceptible because the way our society is structured puts them at greater risk of being exposed to this, which is going to make them more likely to carry that. And that raises really important questions about personal responsibility um, and versus sort of what the community should be responsible for. So I think the, the, the image of seeing black people on buses who are in cramped spaces, who can't socially distance from each other, who are going to jobs where they're going to have a greater likelihood of being exposed, just that this is not something where people are um, being irresponsible in their behavior um, or they are taking unnecessary risks. No, our society is asking them to take risks, and we're asking them to bear greater risks because historically we have put people of color in more vulnerable positions. Um, you know, if we think about, you know, to liken this to, and um, if we think about the creation of Social Security, um, you know, in order to get Social Security passed, Southern Democrats, you know, wrote the laws in such a way uh, that they actually wrote out agricultural and, and domestic workers. Those were disproportionately African-American. Um, and the consequence of that is that that has negative impacts that are going to cascade generationally um, in terms of uh, how wealth can accumulate. So, you know, you keep in mind, you know, that, you know, in general, you are looking at uh, blacks and Latinos who have a fraction of the wealth uh, of their white counterparts, which means that they can't afford to take time off. They can't necessarily weather unemployment in the same way that even their poor white counterparts are able to do so. So we're forcing them out to work, and then we're sort of telling them, well, you should be doing this or you should be doing that, right? I think that, you know, this is one of the things that we have to bring into the conversation When we're talking about systems versus personal behavior, these folks are doing the best that they can with the few resources that they have. Um, And it's a question of whether or not we as the members of the community are going to help back them up and help to support them by providing community infrastructures that are going to make it safe for them to be able to live.
2: Absolutely.
1: Uh, Michael, go ahead, Michael. I'm standing
2: here uh, peering out my window, sheltered in place in my home, and the DeKalb County Sanitation Department truck just came by. Today is Wednesday, collected uh, my garbage. They are at risk. You can't shelter in place if you work for the DeKalb Sanitation Department. But let me tell you what happened. So I received criticism because I recommended that sanitation workers be considered as frontline workers and therefore receive a hazard pay or have a pay of what people call it a frontline Additional compensation. See, I get it and I appreciate and celebrate the doctors and the nurses, and I celebrate our police and fire and 911. But in a pandemic, removing of garbage and, and, and refuse from the community is absolutely central. But that was criticism because we extended that uh, financial support to sanitation workers in DeKalb County.
1: Um, we've got to get to a break. Um, before we do, Michael, I'm going to throw out a list of things that people have uh, identified, uh, experts have identified as some of the reasons that uh, African Americans are are shouldering an disproportionate share of the burden for this disease. Um, we've already mentioned a couple of them, having jobs that require them to work outside of the home, uh, and, uh, less likely to have tests ordered by doctors, but then there are these. Uh, uh, many African Americans live in highly segregated communities where healthcare is less available. Uh, certainly, that's true in cities like Chicago and Detroit, which we just talked about. Have more pre-existing conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, and other illnesses. Uh, partly again for sociological reasons, uh, less likely to have insurance. Live in high density cities in, crowding, in crowded housing uh, facilities and, and may live in food deserts and have to travel further to buy groceries or uh, n- not have great access to the kind of healthy foods that we all believe we should be eating. Uh, Michael, uh, Andre is certainly correct. There's no predisposition among African-Americans to get COVID-19. Uh, but all of us are, are equally vulnerable to the disease, but those factors and others really do have an impact. On how, uh, on how this disease is being felt in the African-American community, right?
2: Uh, absolutely. And back to the professor, we have to reinforce that there's no genetic predisposition dis- uh, to this because that would necessarily lead to more discrimination. If you say, oh, black people are more likely to uh, become infected and to transmit the disease, that's just not true. One other factor is housing and living patterns. Sometimes you have multi generational families living together, uh, grandparents, mm-hmm. parents, and and and, um, and 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 children all living together in the same household. And we talk about, well, go home and quarantine yourself. But if you live in a condition or in a place where quarantine is not possible, then it makes it more difficult to uh, number one get over the symptoms of the disease and more or less, and not to spread it to other individuals within your family. So those are some of the socioeconomic issues, not genetic, but socioeconomic realities that I think are contributing to this crisis in the African-American community across Georgia and across the nation.
1: Dr. Ford, before we get to a break, I wanna make sure that I don't convey and we don't convey the wrong message here. Um, this is as much a socioeconomic as racial issue in many of the things that I just talked about. There are certainly poor whites living in some of the conditions that that I just listed uh, who could be more vulnerable to the disease uh, than, than most of us. So I want to be careful not to suggest that it's only African-Americans who are dealing with some of the conditions we just talked about, and you can reinforce that if you want.
3: That is absolutely true. Um, But uh, Andrea mentioned earlier um, the studies that have shown that um, even people of color, when they do present to a physician, are evaluated differently. So while there may be balances, you know, poor is poor, if you – even if you're not poor, are presenting to a doctor and perhaps not being acknowledged in the same way, that's a disparity. That's an inequity, and that that is yeah. very different I, from a socioeconomic issue. So, um, while certainly yeah, that's really poor- true yeah right so while there are poor you know clearly poor black poor people that's very true and and those disparities will continue to be an issue as we try to address this, this virus but there are some very clear differences in just the interactions um, between people of color and the medical community
0: and i think just to kind of cut in really right, cl- qu- quickly is that while yes i do not want to sort of diminish the plight of poor whites but poverty and race And ethnicity in this country are actually highly correlated with one another and we can't it's really we can separate it sometimes, but there are a lot of times that you can't.
1: Yeah. Okay, I appreciate that. That's that that's a good way to end this segment. I wanna take a break now. When we come back, a lot more to talk about. Dr. Alvarado, I'd love for you to talk about mental health resources during this time and how they too are disproportionately unavailable. Uh, in many cases in the African-American community, among other subjects. But let's do this. Let's take a break. And we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Before we get back to our panel, just a couple of quick program notes. Uh, First of all, if you want to uh, continue hearing about the conversation we're having today, um, Grant Blankenship did an interview with Dr. Joseph Hobbs on coronavirus and race. He's the chair of the Medical College of Georgia. And uh, his interview with Dr. Hobbs can be found at gpb.org virus, where on a daily basis, uh, GPB News is posting what you need to know videos uh, about Uh, the virus. It's really a terrific resource, and I hope you'll take advantage of it. Second of all, uh, tomorrow, I I really hope you'll tune in tomorrow. There are so many ethical and moral questions that accompany what's going on right now. How do doctors decide which patients get a respirator and which don't? Which should be in an ICU bed where they might get additional attention and which should not? And many questions beyond that. We're going to look at that tomorrow with... um, Uh, Dr. Paul Root-Wolpe, he's the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. He's also one of the leading bioethicists in the country. He spent 15 years in that job for NASA. So I think you're going to find that to be a fascinating conversation about confronting life and death issues and how ethicists help guide the choices that people in the medical uh, profession make. All right. Let's, um, Dr. Alvarado. Let me turn to you, if I may. These are difficult times. I think, in, when we traded notes about you doing the show yesterday, you told me that you were continuing as a psychiatrist for child and adolescent uh, uh, mental health to us uh, to deal with patients. I guess by um, by computer. So, two questions, really. How are you seeing the effects of of this virus on people's state of mind? Are are you seeing more cases of depression, anxiety, and then when African Americans apparently have less access to mental health support, what's the impact that's having on that community?
4: Okay, so to answer your first question, um, so our our office, as many. Um, medical offices have has transitioned to telehealth or telemedicine to be able to continue to see our patients ongoing those who present as new and those who are um, who are already established patients for us um, because we did not want um, us having to shelter at home to be a barrier to access to mental health care Um, and we know how important it is during this time period because as we are sheltering at home Um, We're social individuals, and so not being able to socialize with family members, with friends in the way that we're used to going out and being able to live our everyday normal and having to adjust to a new normal is causing um, some heightened anxiety, certainly can lead to heightened depression because of just feeling isolated. I mean, consider someone who lives by themselves and may not see anyone all day. Um, And so just the the lack of access to being able to get out and about and do things as we normally would is leading people to, to more, um, you know, worry, worrying, and then we have to look at this impact financially as well. So um, I have a lot of clients who already, um, you know, were struggling as far as income was concerned, and they've lost jobs, and so they may have a household where no one is working right now. And so now there's heightened anxiety and worry about their finances and what are we going to do next. And so there's all of these things playing a role. And so a lot of individuals um, in public health have looked and said the next wave after this pandemic, this this uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, is the escalation in mental health services and use. Um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration said that their calls volumes have gone from, um, maybe about 2,000 to roughly about 7,000, so a surge in how many calls they're getting just to have people to connect with someone and get access to, um, to um, a mental health provider. Um, And our own agency is also seeing the same thing, where our call lines are overwhelmed so much so that we're having a hard time getting people in and getting them scheduled just because of the the volume and the demand of the calls that we have. Um, So when you look at that, just because um, we know that um, those with a lower socioeconomic background Um, sometimes have a barrier to health care, in particular African Americans as well, Um, part of that barrier is, like I mentioned before, um, not having insurance. And so because they don't have insurance, they believe that they just can't get access to health care. So part of that is lack of insurance, but also part of that is lack of knowledge um, about the mental health care system and and being aware that just because you don't have insurance or you might have Medicaid or Medicare does not mean that you cannot get access to a mental health care provider. Um, And then with mental health, we also have to deal with the added burden of stigma, Um, stigma associated with mental health services, particularly in the African-American community. And some of that mistrust and that that stigma is real because of how physicians have communicated with African-American patients. Um, The American Psychiatric Association um, has studied it, and they know that there's a communication difference between African Americans and white patients, that physicians are more likely to be verbally dominant, physicians are more less likely to engage in patient-centered care and communication with their patients. And so all of this just kind of cycles through and leads to, you know, African Americans not wanting to seek out mental health services, even if it could be a benefit to them.
1: Um, all right. Thank you f- for that. So all of this said, Michael Thurman, as the CEO of the county of DeKalb County, what and as you look at the issues of African-Americans being underserved, having more cases of coronavirus, other issues that you're dealing with in terms of the virus in DeKalb, what do you need? What is what are you still lacking from the state, from the federal government? What do you, as leader of the county, still need?
2: Oh, great question, Bill. There is an opportunity here, uh, not that will assist and support and help African Americans and their families who may be uh, infected or may have even lost loved ones, but there's an opportunity here for Georgia and for America. As we speak, hundreds of millions of dollars are being appropriated to the state of Georgia to respond to this crisis. The plan that I hope Governor Kemp and the members of the General Assembly will fashion, will recognize the challenges that we face, that the disproportionate impact that this virus has had on people, on poor people, and on people of color. And I mentioned that, I, and I poor people look at the outbreaks in the poultry plant and the meat packing uh, facilities, who are disproportionately Hispanic and other immigrants. So, the state of Georgia has an opportunity. You know, in the past, it's been well, we can't afford it. Well, now the money is available to expand health coverage to a broader swath of the population to provide more mental health uh, services to citizens who may not have private insurance or may not be able to afford it, to really make a difference. The moment is now. It's not Now it's no longer financial. You know, it's interesting that conservatives in Washington rush to write the check. There's been a sea change in political philosophy in Washington, D.C. Now we have to see whether or not that philosophical shift has made it way its way to Georgia. Now, Governor Kemp said something a couple of days ago at one of his press conferences. He said, look, we're going to spend the money and, to address this crisis, and I give him credit for that. What needs to happen now is that people like Dr. Ford and Dr. Alvarado and other scientists and doctors who spent their lives on the front line addressing these issues should be brought to the table to help to fashion the solution or at least the response to this crisis. So that is what I would like to see. People much smarter than myself, because it's really not a political solution. Now we need the doctors and the physicians and the scientists to come forward. And I'll stop when I say one thing I've said to my entire staff and in, uh NDK. In First we're gonna do the right thing and then we'll consider any political implications associated with it. Georgia needs to do the right thing for its citizens and then if necessary, make any political calculations or deal with the implications of it. If we can just do the right thing, we will come out of this a better state, a more insured and a healthier state than how we went into it. But we have to commit to doing the right thing first and getting the right people in the room, people with experience. You know, there's no one more experienced in dealing with public health issues, with communities, uh, uh, who've been uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged than a Dr. Ford and so many of her colleagues, but they need to be at the table.
1: Dr. Ford, let me ask you that question. Um, without regard to whether it's the African-American uh, community that you serve out in DeKalb County and Fulton County, just in a broader way, are DeKalb and Fulton counties now getting what you need to address coronavirus? Are the tests out there? Are um, PPEs available to the uh, medical facilities in your communities? Where are the needs still uh, to be filled in, in the in the communities you cover at DeKalb and Fulton?
3: Well, we did get off to a slow start, um, as I'm sure everyone is aware, with the availability of tests. But now we have enough tests, I think, to test the folks that need it most critically. We have... Um, tests coming from the state um, at a very rapid rate, and we actually just acquired a machine that will allow us to do rapid testing. Hopefully, um, we'll be up and running by next week. Um, The issues around COVID right now are, uh, again, social issues. what do we do with families where an individual is positive, has tested positive, but has people in their home that are vulnerable? What where, where do we? Where, where do we house them? What do we do with them? How do we manage our first responders who may test positive or may be exposed? Where do we? Where do we put them? What do we do with our homeless population? Um, who you know are transient and how do we make sure a that they are tested b that if they are positive they have a safe place to isolate so right now i think our issues are not so much ppe and test kits which i mean will continue to be a challenge because i think we'll never be able to test every single person in the county but we certainly have enough at this point to test folk who are symptomatic Um, but right now i think the larger issue for us is those social things trying to manage um People who may be exposed and don't have other options, and so uh, the the management of this is not just a clinical impact; it's it's social. You know, how do we support people, for example, who do have to go to work every day? Are there are there ways that we can help them continue to earn a living without having to put themselves in harm's way, being outside all the time or being out? Um, Without a mask, can we provide those kinds of things to the general public, not, not just the medical community, but is there a way we can set up mask dispensaries in grocery stores, for example? Because I went to the grocery store this weekend, and I was stunned to see how many people still don't have a mask. And I'm wondering, do you just not have access to a mask, or are you just not feeling like you need to wear one? And, and interestingly enough, one of the most common people I saw who did not have a mask were seniors. Um, So I think there's a lot of different gaps that we have um, that still need to be addressed if we're really going to flatten this curve and everything. And I always say this is not about medicine. It's about um, the social constructs of making sure that people have the wraparound services that they need.
1: Uh, I'm going to jump in right now because we are completely out of time for today's show. I really wish we could go for another hour or more. There was so much uh, to talk about this is an incredibly important subject, and I'm very grateful to our guests who were with us for the show today. Michael Thurman, Andra Gillespie, Dr. Sandra Ford, and Dr. Anastasia Brown-Alvarado. Thanks for being with us. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. We'll be back with another Political Rewind tomorrow. Hope to see you then. Take care, everybody.